Construction and the Climate, Retrofitting. Welcome to Construction and the Climate. This is a podcast series from 39 Essex Chambers with me, Camilla Tahar and Ruth Keating. In this podcast series, we'll be discussing the big climate issues affecting the construction sector. Today, we're joined by Will Hurst. Will is a managing editor of Architects Journal. He is an award-winning journalist who has spent his career writing about architecture and the built environment. In particular, he has written extensively about the sector's contribution on the climate crisis and is currently leading the AG's anti-demolition campaign, Retrofit. And we're here today to discuss retrofitting with Will. So welcome, Will. Thank you. Will, to kick us off, can you please give our listeners an overview of what the Retrofirst campaign is? Sure. Well, we've been running it for quite some time now. I think it's around four years since we launched the campaign, which is quite long, really, for any sort of newspaper or magazine. But I think we feel it remains very relevant. We haven't yet really achieved the full aims of the campaign. And indeed, I think with every passing month, it kind of seems to get more relevant and more of an immediate thing that the industry needs to tackle. So just to tell you a little bit about how it came about, we were very, as a team of of journalists at the AJ, we're quite a small team, but we were very much struck by the IPCC reports of the UN in late 2018. That was the one you probably recall. A lot of people remember this one because it was described as a deafening wake-up call. It talked about the world having around 12 years at that point to really get to grips with radically bringing down carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. So it was quite alarming, really. And I think after that, we spent many months sort of looking at what's the impact of our audience. Our audience is largely architects, as you'd expect. What role do they play? Because we were aware that materials like steel and concrete were very carbon intensive in terms of their production. So we were kind of aware that the architects as the people who specify materials might have a key role. So we did a lot of consultation with architects and engineers, other people who had maybe been focused on this for longer. And after many months of writing around this subject, we came to the view that a campaign was a good idea. Well, on that, it seems that, as you say, the case for retrofitting is so important in terms of how it fits within the built environment. And as you say, it's growing in more and more relevance. Why do you think it's the case that retrofitting isn't the default option for people? Well, I think we realised right at the outset of launching the campaign that this was quite an ingrained part of how construction and development works. We didn't think that architects on their own were capable of turning this around because it seemed to us quite a systemic problem. And I think that is why the campaign is primarily focused on people in positions of power. And by that, I mean primarily the government, because obviously the government sets tax and it sets policy. And in both those areas, we don't have a system which supports circular economy and construction. The system of property development that exists at the moment and the way that it is profitable is based quite largely, I think, around disposability, seeing existing buildings in cities as disposable assets And obviously, when land is purchased by investors and developers, they are looking ahead to what sort of profit they can make. They're looking at the gross development value, and gross development value has a a profit margin attached. 
So often the price paid for this piece of land, which may have a building on it, if you're talking about a city, of course, will depend on that sort of speculation about what can be built. And often the way of making the biggest profit is to max it out, to build as much space as you possibly can. And often that means densification. So retrofitting, although you could potentially add some floor area on top of existing buildings, is not typically going to result in a much bigger building in the way that demolition and rebuild would. So it's all tied up with those sort of developer calculations. And going back to the policy and the tax issue, I think both the policy fails to push people towards the more sustainable option of retrofitting at the moment. It's There's a real policy vacuum here. And it, I'm sad to say that we haven't been able to change that. Despite four years of campaigning, we have not really seen much improvement in the policy landscape. And on tax, we have a perverse situation, which your listeners may be aware of, whereby retrofitting and refurbishment is taxed at the full 20% of VAT, whereas other sectors are taxed at a much lower rate. Housing, for example, new build housing is taxed at 0%. So we're propping up the least sustainable forms of construction at the moment. And although I think awareness of this issue has grown very rapidly, and I'm very pleased about that, we haven't seen the government action that we need. So, Will, just touching on the government action in relation to tax, and I understand tax is one of the sort of three demands that you're looking at. And you mentioned the perverse situation that retrofitting is taxed at the full rate of VAT. Could you explain exactly what it is that you're asking for? So with tax, I think we were aware that there'd be some degree of opposition within Treasury to making these kind of reforms, probably based on the idea that this was going to result in less revenue for the Treasury and it was therefore going to cost them money to do this kind of reform. So we said that refurbishment should drop to 5% or below. I think in an ideal world, you would have a kind of switch whereby new build would cost more, perhaps 20%, and refurbishment would cost 0%. But I don't think that's a kind of very politically palatable thing for government to do. Obviously, we all know that every government talks about the importance of house building. We're in a housing crisis. We recognise that. We're not trying to be an anti-development campaign, but the government is so committed to new housing for understandable reasons that they often say we need to be build 300,000 homes a year. They're not going to suddenly turn that from being 0% to 20%. So I think the way forward for the government and the way we increasingly need to sort of frame this argument is maybe an equalisation of rates so that retrofit and refurbishment is not penalised. At the moment, it is being penalised and that's making it harder and harder, even though developers and investors can see the arguments about the planet, they're increasingly understanding what this embodied carbon equation means. It doesn't mean that their financial numbers are always going to stack up and councils and other local authorities often have a vested interest in backing demolition and rebuild because of things like section 106 those planning gains that mean that the developer pays for something for the community whether that be affordable housing or other kind of public benefits on the back often of private housing or other development so typically demolition followed by very large buildings results in more 
of that planning gain, that more of that public benefit that the councils can see. So even though they might have declared climate emergency, and last time I looked, three quarters of local authorities in the UK had declared climate emergency, they don't join the dots between that and the embodied carbon cost of these developments that they're waving through planning. Well, in terms of the campaign, I think that's really interesting on tax. And obviously there's the two other limbs of the campaign, so policy and procurement. I totally agree that I think equalisation is key. And you already brought out one of those, I think, in the policy arena in terms of Section 106 and how it's perceived, because, of course, the effect of Section 106 is oftentimes that you get these benefits to the local community. In terms of that policy piece, now you've said the current policy fails to push people in the direction of retrofitting. In terms of the campaign, do you think there are any other bits of work that need to be done around policy to really do that equalisation exercise, as you put it, or pushing people in the way of making good decisions for retrofitting? Yeah, I mean, I think local plans and indeed the overarching NPPF, the National Planning Policy Framework, could be far more explicit about the cost of construction. It is not compatible for us to carry on in this way and hit our carbon budgets when you consider that 40% of our entire annual carbon emissions come from the built environment. And within that, probably about a quarter, around 10%, comes from construction itself. And these are things that, unlike other areas of the economy, are not really being tackled. They're just staying the same. I was reading something this morning about efforts to stop garden centres selling peat. And again, it sort of reminded me of this thing that we're grappling with, where, you know, government has sort of known for a decade or two that extracting peat and selling it to the public is extremely bad, causes huge carbon emissions. It's not what we should be doing because obviously peat bogs are a carbon sink. And I think there's a sort of parallel there between our arguments. They're accepted in logical terms, but there seems to be complete inability by government to actually act on this. I don't know why that is, whether it's to do with just the sort of chaotic nature of government that we've seen in recent years or whether it's to do with vested interests who are very powerful in property and construction who are lobbying and maybe are better at lobbying than the climate focused lobbyists but for whatever reason we've not seen those explicit policies that we need and other countries are are rapidly getting ahead of us in terms of limiting embodied carbon i think we've often gone down a sort of measurement route that and i'm not against measurement of development where you try and make it mandatory to have whole life carbon developments, for example, of buildings over a thousand square meters. I think that's the stipulation that now exists in the London plan. London is different from the rest of the country in adopting this, but other countries are actually putting limits on those. We're just talking about measurement. And indeed, I think our preoccupation with measurement means that we miss out on other types of really useful climate action based on principles. In France, for example, President Macron has brought in a stipulation that all public buildings must contain 50% or more natural materials. So we're talking mainly timber there. That's a sort of thing that in one fell swoop will have a huge impact on the embodied carbon profiles of those buildings. But I think we're just creeping forward here with sort of efforts to measure, but not yet to limit embodied carbon. And indeed the embodied carbon bill that was introduced Last year, it was a private member's bill introduced by Conservative MPs, failed. 
And the government's response, very disappointingly, was that they didn't think there was consensus in the industry on this issue, that they thought it might damage SME businesses, that they needed more time to consult. I don't think either of those reasons are are valid. And frankly, we don't have time to consult. We should be doing this right now. And thinking about the impact on embodied carbon profiles, I'd love to discuss the third limb of your campaign, which is about focusing on procurement. Would you be able to tell us what changes are needed and why it's important to look at procurement? Sure. This was really our feeling that the public sector was a, a leading landowner and developer in its own right. And therefore, if you wanted to stimulate the green economy in this area, retrofit skills and retrofit know-how, retrofit innovation, a good way to start would be to use the public sector to say, okay, we're going to show the private sector the way to go. And when we develop offices or schools or hospitals, whatever it may be, we're going to prioritise this area and we're going to have a default in favour of reusing existing buildings. I think that would be very powerful, and I hope it's something that the next government looks at. In terms of that, Will, I think what the campaign really shows is these three really important limbs to encouraging retrofitting, but also, I think, in a way, three really important impediments that exist for people to really embrace retrofitting. What I always think about an area like this, and certainly the podcast can be a place for this, where we get people on and they're very passionate about the environment and climate change, and they understand what needs to be done, and they have that expertise. But of course, the problem is there are always those still left to be converted. In terms of those people, how do you think, Will, people can drive home the importance and the necessity of this to those kind of people? And in particular, would you have any advice to help developers and owners make this decision to retrofit rather than demolish and just build? There's a number of sort of answers to that. I think part of it is to say, that actually, despite what I said earlier about policy, we do have policy in this area. And I think it is ignored at its peril. And the reason I say that is because of the recent decision by Michael Gove to block M&S from demolishing and and rebuilding its flagship store in, in Marble Arch in Oxford Street. Now, obviously, this case has been a bit of a cause celebre. And we've played a part in that because we called on Michael Gove alongside Save Britain's Heritage to test all these arguments at public inquiry. And he agreed to that. And in the end, he actually overturned all the previous planning decisions that had been made by Westminster, by the Mayor of London, and indeed the view of the planning inspector, which is that this development should proceed, and said that actually he thought it should not. And he based that on two main areas on heritage and on embodied carbon and these kind of arguments that we've been making. So that was very encouraging. But I think the crucial thing, and this is in terms of speaking to planning barristers like yourself, is that I think he relied on paragraph 152 of the NPPF, the overarching national planning policy document that I mentioned earlier. And paragraph 152 deals with how the planning system should, quote, support the transition to a low-carbon future, close quote. And among other things, it says that the system should, quote, encourage the reuse of existing resources, including the conversion of existing buildings, close quote. And having talked to Estelle Dehon 
Casey, who you may know is uh, also a public law barrister in planning and environmental law. Her view is that this really underlines a part of the MPPF that people hadn't been paying enough attention to and that it's really a policy which means that any developer should demonstrate right from the outset that they've taken alternatives to demolition very seriously. And she would argue that was something that SAVE were able to show at the planning inquiry that MS hadn't done, that they hadn't properly considered those alternatives. That was her view. But I think, having spoken to other planning consultants and planning barristers, that that's not that unusual, that actually that we do have policy. It could be clearer, it could be more explicit, but it's still there. And obviously, MS feel very angry about this decision they feel they've been singled out but it really shows that we should be thinking very clearly very seriously about other ways of doing things so we're not saying demolition can never happen but you have to kind of look really closely at at ways of avoiding demolition well i think that's absolutely right i mean the marks and spencer's decision is one which got a lot of attention which is I think, very positive in terms of raising awareness of this issue. And of course, the first thing is it does have to become that default choice for people. And when retrofitting becomes that default choice and it's encouraged by policy and tax and procurement and everything else. And then the second important part of the piece can happen, which is people develop the expertise they need to have amazing functional buildings, but ones that don't diminish the future that we hope to have for this planet and for the climate on the whole. So, Will, thank you so much. Thank you for speaking about the campaign. It's so important and so interesting. And we really appreciate having you on the podcast. And finally, thank you to our listeners. At 13 on Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars. 